one of the things that's a real treat about the Christian and Missionary Alliance is that every church is different. Uh, that's probably true for most churches anyways, but uh, the Alliance itself is structured in a way. That's the denomination that we belong to. The Alliance itself is actually structured to have uniqueness according to its cultural locations. Um, that even happens on the district levels. When you go from district to district, uh, think of districts like you would think of states or particular regions of the country. We organize ourselves like that on a national level. You will find that they're organized different, that they do things differently. Yeah, some things are the same, but it's not cookie cutter. It's not like McDonald's where you go and you have one Big Mac in one location. That's the Big Mac you're going to have all around the world with all sorts of different locations. That's how it's going to be. I particularly learned the cultural differences because originally I come from Canada and I was part of the Canadian Christian and Missionary Alliance. And when I moved from the Eastern Canadian district in a suburb of Toronto to come to this district, the Northeastern district, oh, I learned very quickly that the way they do things there are not the way that we do things here. When I first showed up, I showed up to serve as an associate pastor of a church in Albany with the intention that that would transition to a lead pastor role in about a year. And what I didn't know when I arrived was that uh, there was an old tradition that the district had that everyone who was a licensed worker in our district would be expected to serve in some capacity for the district. They get paid on their church time, they get paid from their church salary, but the, technically the church would volunteer that staff member to the district to allow different projects and things to function. Uh, Alliance men would do work projects all around the district, maybe go help repair a church or, or things like that. Uh, there were other things that people could get involved in, like some of the regular district committees that you could be a part of that met more frequently than others. And, you know, things like licensing and ordination or the district executive committee, those met monthly. That could be your service. But for most of us that weren't senior pastors at the time or were youth pastors, worship pastors, that meant serving at Delta Lake. You know what Delta Lake is? Delta Lake is our family camp. It's the place where we host camps for families, kids, youth. Uh, the camp hosts a haven camp for uh, those with uh, uh, physical disablements or mental disablements, and they are uh, just doing some amazing stuff. And when I first showed up, all of a sudden I got an email saying, hey, guess what? You get to serve the district and you get to get volunteer some of your time in the summer because you're going to be a junior high boys counselor. What that meant was I would be in charge of about five to six boys in the cabin. I would be uh, with them, I would stay with them, and I would supervise them, and I would help counsel them in any way that I thought. Well, I was a youth pastor in Canada. I figured this would actually be pretty easy. So I'll just give them the rules that I would give uh, any kid as we were going on a youth retreat back in Canada. I, ha I had a, a set of rules that I tweaked a little bit for this week of camp because it was going to be longer than the three days. I called it the here's how to go home early speech. 
And the way to go home early was you did something so bad, we called your parents and either asked them to come pick you up early or we were going to take you home. We were going to drive in the middle of the night and drop you off with your parents and have a frank conversation with your parents. It was basically a conversation to say, listen, we don't have a lot of rules, but if you screw these ones up, you're done, right? So here were the here's how to go home early things that we did that I gave our, my campers, my, my particular cabin at Delta Lake. The first rule I said was, at one meal per day, you have to have something green on your plate. Not that you had to have a, specifically the color green, but you had to have something healthy. So if you had sugar cereal in the morning, and then you had hamburgers and french fries at lunch, please put salad, please put vegetables, something on your plate. You have to eat something green. Don't skip it. I'm watching because I sit with you every lunch. Just tell me when you're going to do it and eat something healthy. Uh, the second rule was, I don't care what you do. Camp is fun. Camp is enjoyable. Um, but if you do something that's fun, but is also maybe not really appreciated by the camp, it's kind of in that gray area of the rules. It's not necessarily against the rules, but maybe it's not a good idea I just don't want to find out about it. That was my second rule. My third rule was this. Don't wake me up in the middle of the night. Unless you're actually on fire, or I'm on fire, and we're all going to die. And by that I meant, I don't care how late you're up. I know there's a curfew. I don't care how late you're up. I don't care if you sneak out in the middle of the night. I don't care how much soda and sugar you consume right before bed. Go nuts. It's camp. It's meant to be fun. I'm not here to be your dad. Go have fun. But if you wake me up in the middle of the night, then you get to do dishes for the entire camp all the next day. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You and I will go down and we'll introduce ourselves to the head cook and we will say how glad you are to be able to serve at camp and you will hand wash all the dishes. That is what you'll do. If I wake up, be as noisy as you want, have as much fun as you want, get into a little bit of good trouble if you want, but don't wake me up. And of course, I set them up for success as well. Uh, we had just uh, had uh, our son, he was an infant at the time, and one of the things that we had learned in uh, some of the classes that we had to take in, in, in having a baby was deep breathing exercises, and those things were great. I mean, you could, you could learn how to fall asleep in any, in any spot. I'm not going to do it here because it's already easy to fall asleep in church, right? So I'm not going to teach you how to do it. But we learned the deep breathing, how to hold it, let it go, think about all the different body parts, tell them to relax. It was great. It was a lot of fun. So at the end of my talk, I said, those are my three rules. Go have fun. Everybody filed out of the cabin. They thought it was great. Except for one kid. One kid stayed behind. I don't, I don't remember his name. And he, he said, uh, Pastor, can I talk to you? And Already he hit on my fourth unwritten rule, which is please don't call me pastor. Pastor's not my name. 
Call me Brian. We're friends here. So if you need to, if you absolutely have to call me something that has my title in it, make sure my name also goes with it because pastor's not an actual name. Anyways, just a small pet peeve there. Total aside, just so you know, that was, that was free. I said, no, no, just call me Brian. What's up? thought about it for a second, and then he said, are you sure you're a pastor? That's what he said. Are you sure you're a pastor? And I said, well, I, I think so. I mean, one of the reasons I'm working here is because all pastors have to work here, and I like you, but I don't know that I give up a week in July for you, so, you know, help, help me understand why are you asking this question? And he, and he said, well, I've gone to Delta all of my life. I've gone since I was an elementary school kid, and now this is my second time here as a uh, middle school and uh, the boys' side of camp. And all of my counselors had all of these rules and all of these things that they wanted me to do, and they were going to, all right, so we got to be checking your journals for devotionals and things like that. we got to make sure you do all these things, and you know, you just got to get all that stuff done. And they're going to track us all the time to make sure we're where we're supposed to be. And you're not doing any of that. Are you sure you're a pastor? <laughs> I get asked that a lot, I think subconsciously, almost regularly since, uh, since that time. So I think some people wonder, wait a minute, are you a pastor? Sometimes I get that uh, because I'm so young looking. No, you don't laugh. That You say amen. Not, not laugh. Laughing's not the right response. It's amen. Um, I would say, but you, you don't look like a pastor. True. And that kid certainly struggled with it. And at the end of the week, he had just an amazing week. The whole cabin had an amazing week. The other counselors thought I was nuts because the very first night, they're all drinking Jolt Cola as much as they can after the... Uh, uh, youth tab and then they all went to the tuck shop or the snack shop and just you know they downed like a couple of cans each but thankfully deep breathing exercises can even overcome the power of jolt cola in middle school boys so that's pretty impressive and yet i found that question interesting what that young man's experience was because he couldn't get over the fact that they one would let me be a a uh, middle school uh, boys counselor for that week strangely enough they never asked me back but maybe that's because I was a senior pastor by the next year so maybe that just makes total sense but the way that this young man viewed me and what was expected of a pastor as a counselor at camp did not fit his understanding of what I was going to do he had preconceived maybe stereotypical understanding of this is what you do this is what counselors do and i didn't fit that mold i think people have preconceived perceptions and understandings about all people that we see we look at people and we make judgment calls we judge a book by its cover i think we do that with all sorts of people and people constantly surprise us when they don't fit the mold when they don't fit the box that we put them in. And I think the same is true for the way we view God. All of us have a preconceived understanding of God. 
we have a dominant picture, we have a dominant image that may change from time to time, but we have an image of when someone says God, we get this picture in our head. I love what uh, a pastor said once at our general council. Uh, his church had gone through a massive, massive shift in philosophy in order to be able to reach people for Christ because they weren't very successful at it. And one of the things that they did with his schedule was make sure that he had much more time free to be in the community. And he leveraged that time to be uh, a coach for some of the athletics that were happening in the community. I don't remember if it was soccer or football or baseball or whatever, but he would get a chance to talk to parents and, and so on and other people who were there cheering on their kids. And more often than not, he would get a chance to say this is what he did for a living. And sometimes he told them he was a pastor, sometimes he told people he was in sales, which is kind of true. But uh, eventually people would discover that he was a pastor and something would happen. A wall would go up, the relationship dynamic seemed to change, and sometimes he would say, oh, I don't know, uh, I, just, I just don't believe in God. And I loved his answer to this. He was so ready. He said, tell me about the God you don't believe in because the odds are I don't believe in that God either. And what he's saying is that people have these preconceived notions, maybe some misunderstandings, some things that have come up in their experience or some questions that they've not been able to resolve and they just don't wrestle with the real picture of God. Everyone has that. Everyone has a preconceived understanding, a picture in their mind when they think of God. The question is, is it preconceived or is it accurate? The challenge is that the Bible actually shares a number of different ways that we can understand the nature of God. But I think one of the most powerful ways that helps us have hope in the dark, real faith for the real world, is found in one of the most famous biblical texts of all. It's found in Psalm 23. And if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Psalm 23. And if you don't, uh, I'd encourage you to, uh, to download a Bible app on your phone and follow along, make some notes there. Or just follow along on the screen. We're going to have the verses for you. This is what we read in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He is a shepherd. What does that mean? What does it mean that the Lord is our shepherd? Well, th this psalm was written by a man named King David. He was the king of Israel. No one was more powerful. No one was more important than him in all of the nations. And when you think of kings in ancient times in other cultures, some of those kings actually thought that they were gods, that they were divine in some way, that they had some kind of divine power, divine authority, divine right, that they would one day have authority in heaven like they have on earth. Some nations, when they thought about their gods, viewed them in ways like you and I would view a vending machine, where we would think, 
Okay, if I, where they would think, if I worship in a particular way, if I offer the right particular sacrifice, that particular God of whatever it is that I want to, to be done in my life will then bless me. I need my crops to grow really well this year. I need a bountiful harvest. Last year was bad. This year needs to be good. So they'd offer extra to the God of the harvest. They wanted to expand their family and have more kids because in an agrarian culture, kids were not only a blessing, they were free employees. So let's have more so that we can grow our economy. And so they would go to the god or goddess of fertility and they would, how do, what do we need to offer? What do we need to do? How do we may, be made right? But David saw God in an entirely different lens. He didn't see him as a vending machine and he didn't see him as someone as abstract that needed to be pleased in order to get what he wanted. He said, the Lord is my shepherd Tozer, in the knowledge of the holy, said, What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And when he was writing that book, he was talking of a picture of God from Isaiah 6. You know the story if you grew up in church, that Isaiah the prophet was worshiping in the temple, and it was the year that the king had died. And as he was worshiping, he had a vision of the Lord seated on the throne and the train of his robe filled the temple and his holiness was like smoke and he couldn't see and he was so terrified. He cried out, woe to me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. He knew he was a sinner. He was undone. It's just this amazing picture of holiness. As all the angels sang around the throne, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's the dominant picture that I grew up with in the church. So why would David call a holy God shepherd? When you think of a whole when you think of God, is shepherd the first thing that comes to your mind? Do you think of something else? All of the truths of scripture come into tension and when it comes into tension, you can hold two things to be equally true, even though they seem to be opposite. One of the ways that we see that most clearly is in the nature of who God is. So if we want to know the Lord is our shepherd, we have to understand what David was talking about when he talked about shepherds. And thankfully, he does. He says that the Lord is our shepherd... Because he lacked nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Well, what does that mean? He unpacks that in the rest of the psalm. This is how it reads. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. 
Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What do good shepherds look like to David? What do good shepherds do? Well, they restore the sheep. They make sure they have the right kind of food, the right kind of nutrients. And David recognized that wasn't a physical thing that God did. Of course, he provides for us. David provides for us. That's why we say grace when we receive, before we eat, those kinds of things. We recognize that this is a blessing from God, but that's not what David's talking about. Through God, the shepherd, David finds food for his soul. He, he restores the soul. He gives the soul what it needs. And it's interesting that he describes it in two ways. He makes me lie down in, in green pastures and leads me beside quiet waters. Sometimes sheep in David's day didn't know what to eat. Kind of like our dog Lucy. Our dog Lucy, anything that she can put in her mouth, she thinks she can eat. Sheep or something like that. And they need to be led to good food that will nourish them and restore them. And in the same way, we need to be led to green meadows that restore our soul. And he needs to make us lie down to want that more than anything else. Even if we don't understand it at the time, he makes us lie down. A good shepherd does that for the sheep. Even if the sheep want to run off and eat something else, they are made to lie down. And they are led to still waters. Uh, Larry Osborne, in, in his book, actually described the problem with uh, rushing water, with water that was fairly turbulent. If a sheep tried to drink from rushing water, the water could get over its head, the sheep would continue to try to drink, and it would actually drown. It didn't know when to come up for air. And so the shepherd would say, no, that water's not safe. It's not that it's not water, it's just moving too fast. So I'm going to find you a place where your soul can be renourished and you don't drown. I think it's interesting that God would give us the Sabbath. One day in seven where we are to pause work and be refreshed. And yet, the way we design our lives is that we work eight days a week. I wonder. I wonder if the shepherd knows what he was doing when he said, I will help you lie down and I will restore your soul. He guides us in righteous paths, he says. He guides us in the ways of righteousness. It does no good for the shepherd to lead the sheep off the path, off the cliff to their deaths. It's a personal investment to get us where we want to go. That's the shepherd's job is to take the sheep, to take the flock from one place and to get it to another place, right? Because that's the best benefit for the shepherd. And they do that not by saying, okay, sheep, we need you to get to point B. You're currently at point A. Good luck. We'll see you tonight. And then goes and has a nap in the hammock. 
the shepherd takes a personal investment in guiding the sheep. Let me unpack that. What that means is the Lord sees you. At this very moment, where you're seated, where you're participating online, God sees you. He knows what you need and wants nothing more than to help give it to you. He wants to guide you personally. He sees every one of us individually, and He wants to guide every one of us perfectly. You know, last week when we kicked off our series, we talked about how God gives us His Word, gives us His laws, because we need to be able to see reality. The problem in life is not that we uh, don't do evil things and don't hang out with people who do evil things and instead do good things. The problem is that we don't know what the good things are. And so we need His help and guidance. And so He gives us the Bible. But the way that we are to apply that is often individualistic. It is not cookie cutter. We are not McDonald's restaurants where every one of us has to look exactly the same. No, we are the body of Christ. Each one of us a different part of the body, but the head is Christ. So, He wants to help us personally apply His Word. That's why He gives us His Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion, so that we know what to do with the truth that we receive. God wants to be a personal tour guide for life. God wants to be a personal mentor for life. He wants to be a personal teacher. He wants to be a personal instructor that isn't to a room of 500 people where we give basic truth and then you just got to figure out what to do with it. He wants to meet with, uh, with us one-on-one -on -one after class so that we know what we've been taught and know how to apply it. It's like a good doctor or a good physical therapist. I've been having some uh, pain in my hip over the last couple of months and I've been going to some physical therapy for that and the physical therapist didn't walk into the room and said, so what's the problem? I said, well, I got some pain in my hip. And he goes, okay, so let me tell you everything about the hip. And here's all of the exercises that you can do for the hip. Just take all of them and, you know, if some of them work, great. It's not what he does. That's not a good doctor. That's not a good physical therapist. They made the therapy personal. They said, okay, so you have the pain here. Does it hurt when you do this? No. Well, what if I do this? Yes! <laughs> Okay, so we know some exercises that will help you specifically. How many of these can you do? Well, I think I can do three. Okay, maybe you can do four. Okay, I'll try four, right? And so he's personalizing what I need to do. It's a personalized medical plan. God wants to do the same things with us because he knows as individual sheep, we have different needs than other sheep. Some of them are basic. We need green pastures, still waters, but there's other things we need that are specific. We're in different spots in spiritual journey, in our spiritual journey, than others. And God, the amazing thing about our shepherd, 
is that he personalizes his shepherding for each and every one of us. That means he sees us, loves us despite of what he sees, in spite of what he sees, and creates a personalized plan for care. The fact that God cares about us is mind-boggling. God isn't just with us to teach us. God is with us to serve us. He gives us comfort in dark and evil times, the valley of deep shadow, the valley of the shadow of death. He serves. David experienced the table in the presence of his enemies. He was eating good while his enemies plotted against him. God was providing for him, anointing his hair with oil. Just those personal touches that let him know that God was valuing him. And he knew that God was doing these things in good and loving ways and that he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All of this to say is that this is such a personal, personal relationship we miss something amazing about this little song that David wrote about his shepherd. Haddon Robinson said, uh, it was a great, one of the greatest preaching minds that I've ever known and had a chance to meet, um, has shaped my philosophy of preaching more than you know. Um, he wrote this about Psalm 23. When David was singing Psalm 23, he was singing to others about the Lord, his shepherd. But when David started to sing about the valley of the shadow of death, he was singing to his shepherd. Notice the change in the tense. First, he says, he makes me lie down. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me for his name's sake. But when he starts talking about and starts singing about the valley of deep sorrow, the valley of the shadow of death, he says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. When David was in the valley of the shadow of death, he didn't speak about his shepherd. He spoke to his shepherd. There's a difference, I think, in our preconceived notions and understandings about God. But one of the ways that we have hope in the dark is to recognize that, yes, God is holy, God is sovereign, God is above all, and demands holiness, demands righteousness, demands perfection from us. But David who would later be called a man after God's own heart. He wanted to be closer to God relationally than any person. He said that God was his shepherd. Because like a shepherd, he knew that God provides everything he needs for life. Do you know about 
God or do you know God? There's a difference between knowing facts about God and knowing God. The way that we know God is that we know Him as our shepherd, which means we are His sheep, we belong to His flock. And as we talked about during communion, there is only one way to join His flock, His family, and that is through putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and eternal life. That is trusting that Jesus died for your sins and God raised Him from the dead. And choosing to live your life for Him. Are you His sheep? And if you are, if you belong to His flock, then my second question would be, is He your source of joy that restores your soul? Is He what restores your soul? Not your family, although they can for a time. Not your job, not your paycheck, not your comfort and hobbies and interests. But do you know the shepherd, the one who knows what you need and makes sure you get it? Even if you don't understand at the time. Because he wants to shape your soul. Is he your source of joy? Is he the one that restores your soul? Or is it something else? And one way we can know that, I think, is are we looking for Him in the valley of the shadow of death? Or are we looking for something else? When times get tough, when the world gets dark, when our world gets dark, what do we look for? Do we look for a substance? Do we look for a relationship? Do we look for relief? Or do we look for the shepherd and listen for his voice? I think when we realize that the Lord is our shepherd, it changes everything about our worship. When we gather together, we join online, I think it changes the way that we sing. I think it changes why we sing. I think it changes the motive behind our expressions, our passion for how we sing, how we worship, how we pray. The Lord wants to give you everything you need in life. Everything. Will you let Him lead you as your shepherd? David knew it, and he wants us to know it too, that the Lord wants to be the shepherd of your soul. Will you let him? Let's pray. Father, in this moment, we ask your Holy Spirit would come penetrate to the deepest depths of who we are and help us to not just know the facts that the Lord is our shepherd. So many of us can just recite that psalm because we've heard it so often, it's so famous, it's so popular, and yet 
when we look at what David was writing and what he knew, we want that. We want to know you as our shepherd like David did. We want to know you as our shepherd like Jesus did. Because it's in you we find rest for our souls. It's in you that we find blessing. It's in you that we find goodness and love despite our circumstances. And it's in you that we find eternal hope for the rest of our days with you. We long to know that. And so, Lord, whatever it is that we turn to, would you help us to cast that aside so that you are our shepherd? Would you help us to hear your voice, especially in dark times, and only your voice? Lord, would you be the shepherd of our souls? And would you help us to have that picture, that understanding of your nature that you are and want to be the shepherd of our souls because you want to give us everything we need in life. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.